about three o'clock in the morning, which is about seven hours later, uh, I said, okay, let's go to the emergency <laughs> room. So we go there and they go, you and your gallbladder have got to stay here and we need to remove that gallbladder. That puts me in the hospital on a Monday, March 13th, 2006. And the doctor comes in and he goes, so you have hepatitis C? And I said, yeah. Because you know what? I'm going to CAT scan you. Why? I just want to check it out. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today, I talk with Curtis Salgado, an award-winning soul, blues, and R&B vocalist who's also known for his harmonica playing. Curtis grew up in Eugene, where he was the driving force behind the Nighthawks and a number of other bands. He met John Belushi in the 70s, and John used his blues knowledge, honed from hours spent learning from Curtis, to create the Blues Brothers. Well, I was born in Everett, Washington on uh, February 4th. My birth certificate said, I've discovered this years later, it said Ronnie, and it was crossed out, and then it said Curtis. I said to my folks, you guys were going to call me Ronnie, because I think if I was, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. Whose idea was Ronnie and whose idea was Curtis? I have no idea. They didn't tell you. you know, yeah, they oh, changed funny. it. I'd like to think it was my mother that went, nah, we're going to call him Curtis, <laughs> you know. But I had very great parents. They were jazz enthusiasts to get to the music part. Yeah. And I had an older brother and an older sister, Philip and Wendy. And um, they are just hitting 70. Wow. And my age is 64. So not really sure I was planned or not. So my folks were into jazz, you know, swing. And that was their era coming up. And... Uh, my father was the type of person who literally would sit me down and go, listen to this. This is Count Basie. And listen how he utilizes space. And I'll never forget that. And he, you know, Count Basie is famous for these uh, little flurries on the right hand of the piano. Ba-doot and doot and doot and doot. Bling. Ba-doo-da on the left hand, you know. Yeah. And just very cool. He would point that kind of stuff out to me. The next thing that was a big movement for me, a big change, believe it or not, was the song Sing, Sing, Sing by Benny Goodman, 1938, Carnegie Hall, live at Carnegie Hall. This is a famous recording still. And now with the internet, you could read the exact same thing that I felt years ago, which was, uh, it was a a changer. Uh, My dad's going, he's reading the liner notes. Yeah. And the liner notes back then, you know, basically taught me what this music was. And not only that, about, but about America. Because it would mention the segregation, mm-hmm. the fact that these great musicians of skin color happens to be black, brown, it doesn't matter, uh, had to be led into the back of a restaurant or the back of Carnegie Hall. Count Basie couldn't go through the front door of Count Carnegie Hall. 
he had to go through the back door. That's what? What? That's insane. Mm-hmm. And I learned about segregation and the Civil War and whatever. And I'm really, you know, ever since I was a little kid and there, that's basically how I learned the history of America and the good and the bad. And I'm a huge history nut. Uh, I wish I could retain more of history and stuff like this, but I, I do know odd little things. Yeah. And uh, music, I could t- expand on for hours. Well, what did your dad do? I mean, My he, father was a baker. But he had a love of music. and He, he had a love of music. He, he had an ear for music yes. that he's sitting there pointing these things out to you. Yes. It had significance for him as well. Right. And uh, my father wanted to be a singer, an yeah. opera singer. Wow. And so opera was in the house. Federico Tagliannini, if there's something. I'm, I'm saying his name wrong. <laughs> but it was like Federico Tagliavini mm-hmm. was a uh, tenor opera star. And we had 78s of him. Clear plastic or clear shellac red see-through 78s. Yeah. And I still have that album. Oh, good. And one of the songs that I remember was a song called uh, A Fertile Tear or Uma Frativa Lagrima. Uma Frativa Lagrima. It's in The Godfather, actually. Mm-hmm. But, uh, man, that's, that's a heavy song. That's a blues song. Yeah. And so growing up, listening to this stuff, and then having an older brother and older sister, you know, um, Pretty much, to be blunt, black music was running through the household, mm-hmm. along with, really, if I think about it a little harder, not only black music, but basically roots. Right. So it was also Bill Monroe. It was also folk music. It was, you know, um, Ray Charles, of course, was a huge crossover. Ray Charles was plays in, in white households as, yeah. along with black wa- households. So uh, Ray Charles, a huge crossover artist. Music was was it for me. That was it from the get-go. When you were 13, you saw Count Basie. I did. I saw yeah. Count Basie at 13. And it sounds like that was pretty influential. Very much so. First of all, you're looking at, I'll put it this way. I looked down, and there is Count Basie Orchestra. And I can tell you at the age of 13 who was who. Pretty much a lot of the members of the band. I could go... That's Eddie Lockjaw Davis playing tenor saxophone. And Buck Clayton was still in the band. And, uh, of course, Freddie Green was doing the chunk chunk on the guitar. Yeah. Count Basie at the piano. And out walked Leon Thomas was their, their featured singer. It used to be Jimmy Rushing, Mr. <laughs> five by 5 and it used to be Joe Williams. Yeah. And um, I said to my dad, I want to do that. And one of the things is, this is an all-black band. And my father, is just, my dad just kind of laughed. I said, I want to do that, you know. I mean, I was already listening to it. I was yeah. into it. But you're watching it live. I mean, it was cool on record, but you're seeing it live. Yeah. And I remember said, I want to do that. My dad just, <laughs> he just laughed. <laughs> goes, son, this is men making music. <laughs> These are men making music. And it was an all-black, yeah. big band. Uh, these jazz grades, mm-hmm. killing it. And uh, I still sticks in my head today. I can still picture it in my head. You know. When you started your career in music, was your dad pretty enthusiastic? Was oh, he... he was very much about yeah. it. You know, they knew, um, my folks knew that this is what I was interested in. Yeah. 
and check this little little side note. So I had a I had a grandfather, and the grandfather was a farmer, a wheat farmer in Condon, Oregon, and he had left money for the the grandkids mm-hmm. to go to college with. By the time 1972 came around, the money that he had left for us to go wouldn't have lasted one semester. Yeah. And but my folks said, you know, you don't have to go to college. This is what you want to do, but you've got to spend that money on something related to music. And so I took more voice lessons. Hmm. I was taking guitar lessons when I was 13 years old, yeah. but the, the guitar teacher was evil. You know, he'd kick you if you got it wrong. He'd kick you right, right in the shin. Oh. Well. And so, needless to say, I wasn't looking forward no. to the next guitar lesson. You taught yourself how to play harmonica, though. I taught my, yeah, my mom helped that because a guitar wasn't going good. I mean, I can do bar chords, and I can play, and I can Whoa. strum somebody, show me something. Sure, yeah. I, I can get it. And I have a good ear. You didn't I'm have a, a very good teacher, good though. But I didn't have a good teacher. No. So one day, my mom brought me home a um, harmonica book yeah. and a harmonica, How to Play Blues Harmonica. Now, you got to understand, I already had Paul Butterfield in the house. My brother had a Robert Johnson record on Columbia. The folk era was coming out, was there, and um, was already out and stuff. You know, when the record companies recognized, why don't we just change the package? Instead of these, these old blues guys, Robert Johnson, Skip James, Mississippi John Hurt, you know, Big Bill Brunsey, these records were being reissued under the folk banner. Yeah. And instead of blues. Right. And it was a way to get, well, you know, we got these, we've got these old records in the can. Let's re- recycle them and repackage them. And that's what I was collecting and listening to. And my mother brought home this harmonica book to bring us full circle. And, and so I already had Junior Wells. I had uh, my sister for Christmas brought me home a little Walter record called Hate to See You Go which the Stones just covered recently here in 2017. Right. And um, nowhere near us, probably one of the greatest blues records of all time. Was Eugenia a good place to grow up uh, yeah. as far as you know, getting some gigs and playing music? It was. Yeah. It was. Um, you're very intuitive. Good questions. Let me tell you, I saw everybody there. Yeah. And um, I had a connection, and we had a band. I'm kind of zooming ahead, but... You're coming up in the fairgrounds, the Beatles had hit. There was all these battle of the bands everywhere. So that whole thing just everywhere across the nation exploded. I remember music stores were, were, had music rooms not just teaching individuals, but teaching entire groups of kids how to be a band. Really? Yeah. And Eugene. And Eugene. Wow. And uh, so the, when the fair came around, you know, there was Battle of the Bands at right. the fair. The Moguls, Little John and the Monks, Parivir and the Raiders. All of these bands came up. Yeah. Little John and the Monks and the Moguls and the Sonics and the Kingsmen and all these people. They were all over the place here. When did you start forming a band then? I mean, I know you had... Um... I had a cardboard guitar when I was 13. <laughs> yeah. You know, I started forming a, a mime band like when I was 13 years old. And guitar lessons and stuff. Right. Put together a band, won a talent contest playing guitar. Did Louie Louie, did Little Black Egg, and did Gloria, which I can still play today. Nice. You know, but 
I started playing and working really hard on the harmonica. Hard, hard instrument to learn because you can't see what's going on. Right. You can't. Watch my fingers here. You're like this. It's like a magic trick. You have to know. It's like, you know, the keyboard. Without looking at the keyboard, you have to know where it is. Right. Yeah. You've got to find the notes on yeah. the harmonica. Mm-hmm. I ended up joining a band. Um, by this point, I was playing harmonica and being a front man and singing. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted to be. So you, um, you started your career leading the Nighthawks in Eugene. Yes. Was that your first official band that you were playing no, with? Or you no, had other I was ones? with the same band with that violin player. Yeah. And nobody's going to know these names. A guy named John Bi- uh, named Bob Bicer, who was from New York. Yeah. And New York City. The name of the band that he was drumming for and that I auditioned for and got. And then played in this sleazy, rough bar. It was called the Roman Forum. And I... Played there for about three, four years. Yeah. Night after night, six nights a week, except for Sunday. I was underage. I was 18, 19, 20. Yeah. And we put together a band, probably three years. And uh, three or four years with a band called Three Finger Jack. Steve Mosier on bass, Bob Bicer on drums, Joel, I can't remember Joel's last name. Um, Rob Thomas on violin and guitar, and uh, yours truly on harmonica. And we did everything from Frank Zappa to Little Walter. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And I should also mention, eventually, D.K. Stewart mm-hmm. ended up joining the Three Finger Jack. Well, you were with the Robert Cray Band for about six years, then yeah. later. And it, that turned into the Nighthawks. The Nighthawks. Three Finger Jack morphed into the Nighthawks. Yeah. From these two guys that moved out okay. of Wisconsin, went yep. to the University of Oregon, and it was a guy named um, Harold Persing, mm. who I still talk to on the phone every once in a while, and a guy named Ken Arnaldi, who played saxophone. And they were in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and they brought news of all the real cool blues bands from Chicago the Midwest. Area, probably yeah, too, yeah, yeah. That turned into Harold and the Nighthawks. Yeah. Then Harold turned communist. <laughs> So Harold was giving communist newspapers. We'd go to the gig <laughs> and at the Roman Forum or at this little Mexican restaurant yeah. we used to play, and there would be communist uh, literature Jeez. on the tables. And he was like, this was uh, Nixon. Yeah. And um, they were basically like, like everybody is now, you know. Mm-hmm. Pretty much our government is screwing us over, da-da-da-da-da, and this and that. And uh, he's, I can't be in a band anymore. Um, and Ken Arnaldi, saxophone player, they joined a communist movement. Yeah. So that dissolved Harold of Harold and the Nighthawks, and that turned into the Nighthawks. And I sang for both Harold and I sang for the Nighthawks. Yeah. And then eventually it was kind of like, since I'm the front man and I'm picking the material, most of it, basically kind of my band. Yeah, yeah. You know. How did it was a democracy, <laughs> but it was my band. <laughs> that's it. I'll, they'll argue with me, and that's fine. I'll go okay if you want to say, say so. Yeah, but you weren't singing the song. So, so. Uh, so you ended up uh, then with the Robert Cray Band for yes. about six years, and at that point in Robert Cray's career. This is in the beginning of his career. It was in the 80s, early 80s, right? 
Yeah. yeah. Well, no, actually, it's the 70s. Still the 70s. These are 70s. 70s. So about 1975, uh, Richard Cousins and Robert Cray mm-hmm. hitchhiked down to Eugene. And uh, Robert was already in a band called Steak Face hmm. that I would come to learn about later. Not yeah. years later, but, yeah. you know, who are you guys? And then, you yeah. you know, and I was with a guy who was also in Three Finger Jack. Yeah. We had a sex. I forgot about this. And this is important. I, I apologize to myself because his name was Randy Reese. He was from St. Louis and he, too. University of Oregon yeah. comes to Eugene, and you got to understand Eugene was a hotbed of like, it's an artsy yeah. town, Ken Kesey, uh, the Grateful Dead kind of yeah. situation and stuff. Living in Pleasant Hill, University of Oregon, yeah. it's kind of a blue collar, hippy trippy, artsy fartsy community, yeah. and these two different elements working together. The cultural part of the University of Oregon was and this will lead into Animal House, was uh, hip. A woman by the name of Sue Norquist Hmm. was hiring all of these great blues artists and jazz. You know, uh, I don't know. A University of Oregon was just bringing in these great jazz, CTI jazz artists and all this. Get this. Calls me up and says, Clifton Chenier wants another place to stay. And could they stay at your house? And basically what it was is that they wanted to cook their own food. Yeah. Clifton Chenier, the Zydeco King. Wow. Now, I have him on record at this time. Yeah. Like I said, I, I know what Zydeco is. But on record, it's not at all seeing it live. And so Clifton Chenier ends up staying at my apartment. And for the fact of, like, I have a stove. <laughs> and, I, and so Clifton Chenier and his road manager named Davis Petrie, mm-hmm. huge Creole. Both of these guys were huge. They'd stay at my apartment. I was living with Richard Cousins, who mm-hmm. played bass for Robert. And then we go down in here. I'm, I'm getting off shoot here, but it's just yeah. like Sue Norquist Nor- calls me up and says, do you mind if Otis Rush stays at your house? <laughs> no, I don't. Go pick them up at the bus station. You know, I could go on and on about this. That's interesting. I mean, I'm in Eugene, Oregon, and I go to the bus station, and there's only one guy wearing a trench coat leather jacket with a mile-high pompadour <laughs> from West Side Chicago, and that's Otis Rush. And I come up and go, are you Otis Rush? You know? <laughs> very soft-spoken guy. Very, very nice person. But I got Otis Rush in my apartment. Right. 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 So that was kind of... That's an interesting time in Eugene. That's, that's an interesting time for me, especially. Yeah. I was very blessed. Yeah. And Sue Norquist would like lay these people on me. Nice. We had to back up Otis Rush. No problem. Yeah. Well, I remember when I moved to town, um, that's when you were with the Stilettos. Mm-hmm. Uh, Curtis Salgado and the Stilettos. That was in uh, the early 90s. You had a short stint, too, as lead singer of Santana uh, in the mid-90s. Yeah. How yeah. long was that? It was like one summer, half yeah. a summer. Were they pretty couple, cool, though? Yes and no. Yeah. You know, I uh, I didn't belong there. I didn't mm. feel like I belonged there. He could feel that I didn't. But he, I was, I'm going to put it blunt to you, you know. Um, somehow I got the audition, and I went and auditioned for him. Mm-hmm. But being in the band, I was warned before I went by other members of the band, and this is the truth, and other ex-members of the band who called me up and said, don't do it. Mm. You'll be tortured. And he was a hard guy to get to yeah. get at the time. 
But a learning experience. It but it, oh, like. huge. Yeah. I, I couldn't say no to it. It was right. on the resume, but I, I felt like I needed to wear a banana hat and fluffy things. And, and the songs you're singing are, you know, Oyo, Oyo Como Va. Right. But I did learn Latin stuff, and I got to hang with Santana, who offstage is really cool, and, uh, but to work for was a, a pain in the butt. Yeah. So after that, uh, you and Terry Robb toured with the Steve Miller Band. Yes, I yeah. t- toured with Steve Miller in 1991 or two, with, not with Terry Robb, but oh, with my own band. With your own band. I had the record out, Curtis Salgado on the Stilettos. Mm-hmm. And a little side note here is like, I was really sorry I picked that name. First of all, we had to kind of fight over rights from it for David Bowie, who had a, a stiletto image or oh. used it. But the Stilettos was like elegant, but at the same time dangerous or something. Right. And, and I thought that was cool. But nobody could say it. First of all, they can't say my name because it's Curtis with an S, Salgado. So you have right. two S's you together, to slowly. mashed together. <laughs> Curtis Salgado and, and the stilettos. So what was I thinking? And then I, it was just too uh, West Side Story. <laughs> the stilettos. You know, I just thought, this is dorky. What was I thinking? <laughs> I'm sorry too- I have that first record named it. And too I apologize to, to the world right now. I'm sorry. What a dumb <laughs> word. So... The next record I made, mm-hmm. I said to the producer, can we drop the stilettos? And he goes, God, I was hoping he'd say that. Okay. So I was on. Anyhow, Steve Miller heard the record, and Steve Miller uh, went, came down to see his play. Nice. Where and was he living? He was time? in Kachim, Idaho. Oh, okay. And so we're playing in Kachim, Idaho. Yeah. And um, Steve Miller, bless his heart, came and saw the band. Basically, we hit it off. Nice. really well and he was very nice and he said come on over to my house and i'll cook the band breakfast tomorrow and so we went over to his house and he has a very lovely wife named kim miller and kim cooked the band uh breakfast and around may springtime i thought i'm gonna call up steve i i don't really know him yeah but we had a wonderful talk and and we spoke all night after the gig, and then we talked later on the phone after the gig. And we continued our, you know, he showed us his house, and that was the first time I'd ever seen rock and roll money. Yeah. Rock and roll money. We're like, this guy has a string of hits, and here's what it can bring you. We were all stunned. Yeah. And so uh, later on in the springtime, I, I call him up. I just took a chance. That's kind of how I am. So I'm going to call him up and say hi. Yeah. Well, what's he going to do? Hang up? So I call him up, and immediately we picked up where we left off. But he's going, you know what? I'm going to have this guy. He's going to open up for us. Peter Frampton is touring and opening up. He's part of the show. And, he's, and, and Steve's going on a shed tour. Yeah. I don't even know what a shed tour is yet, but he's going on a tour, and Peter Frampton's going to open up. And they're doing the entire summer together. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this conversation, as Steve is telling me the story. He goes, fuck it. I'm going to hire you. I'm taking you on the road. Wow. I said, don't tease me. What are you saying? Are you, don't be pulling my coattail here. Are you kidding me? Like, hey, no, no. So let me give you this. Do you realize that he's going to fill up sheds already just by himself? But mm-hmm. when you get another name on there that can put butts in seats... You know, so you're going to have a full house and then extra full house. You're mm-hmm. definitely going to mark on it. 
And he said no to Peter Frampton and hired an unknown. Wow. And I would hear the scuttlebutt from across the United States like, who is Curtis Salgado? And all the promoters yeah. that are doing Red Rocks, that are doing, the, you know, Jones Beach. But that's it. Steve Miller says, boom, come with us. Come with me. What? And so he canceled and didn't invite Peter Frampton. And then Steve Miller in the middle of a show would have me come out oh, wow. and play uh we play a set of blues. You know, we do like seven tunes. So I, I had an extra 45 minutes to a half an hour with Steve Miller in the middle of his show. That must have been so cool. It was so cool. He is so cool. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was very, we're still friends to this day. I just spoke to him about three months ago. Yeah. Well, let's you know, talk he, Blues Brothers. That goes back to Eugene. That goes, yeah, let's go back to Eugene because this is also an interesting time for you. Talk about all this stuff happening in Eugene, but uh, John Belushi's there. Filming Animal House. Mm-hmm. At the time, you got to understand, I don't know who John is. Right. Never knew him. Didn't know who Dan Aykroyd was. By this point, I'm with the Robert Cray Band. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not with the Robert Cray Band. I'm with the Nighthawks. And Robert and I hooked up, Richard Cousins and I hooked up yeah. by um, Randy Reese, Ratso. And Randy goes, there's these two black guys that are here in Eugene that are really into the blues. Okay, now stop right there. What? What? Yeah, man, they're our age, and they're into the blues. They're into Muddy Waters and Elmore James. And Randy's saying this. I'm going, really? And I remember walking down the street with him. We're passing a joint back and forth, and we're going down the street. He goes, yeah, this guy's really good, man. And... um, I was going, well, I'll be darned. I'm going, really? And he goes, yeah, you want to go visit these guys and say hi to them or something? I said, sure. And so uh, we go over to this apartment. And I go in, and there's Robert Cray. He's laying in. He's watching television. And Richard's sitting there. I said, hey, you know, I remember coming in and going, oh, God, I heard you guys are the cat's ass. <laughs> and uh, I guess a little few days later, I heard that. It's like that made Robert mad. You know, it's like, what? What's the cat's ass? I heard you guys are the sh- the bomb, the shit, you know. So you want to jam? Robert wasn't into jamming. Yeah. Never has been. And so, but Richard goes, yeah. So we go over to Randy's house. And Randy's got, he's got a, a jam room, mm-hmm. right? And we go into the room and Richard put plugs in and takes his bass out and stuff. And uh, Randy can play drums. He's a sax player, but he knows enough on the drums. And I whip out my harmonicas. And uh, we started jamming yeah. and uh, doing a shuffle. And I'm listening to Richard, and I'm thinking, good Lord, this guy sounds like Jerry Jamont. Now, Jerry Jamont is a great bass player. He's on all the Aretha stuff. Okay. You know. And um, we just hit it off. I go, you sound like Jerry Jamont. And he goes, man, you play great harp and stuff. You know, we have a harmonica player. He was back there at the house. His name is uh, Rocky Mazanaris. And uh, Rocky could blow pretty good harp and stuff, but he was a wild child, wilder than me and Richard, because we <laughs> were wild childs too. He didn't last long in that group. And we just started pretty much running every day from that point on. Richard plays with Robert. Mm-hmm. I have the Nighthawks. Richard and I end up getting an apartment together. <laughs> and uh, that's the scene. Yeah, That's how we... Richard and I discovered each other and Robert Cray. Yeah. Then to make extra money, we will let, we're not working tonight, 
let's go over here and play together. So my drummer from the Nighthawks and me and Richard Cousins, who I live with, you know, we'd get with Robert and we'd go over here or we'd find another bass player and make some side money. Nice. So then as things, you know, this is more day in, day out, day mm-hmm. in. And, you know, Nighthawks are popular. And we helped Robert get established in Eugene. You know, so there's this click of people. Yeah. We start making more money and that's and getting gigs. We end up getting a gig and we think, why don't we put together a trouble Double trouble, triple threat kind of thing. <laughs> and we'll have a, the Nighthawks and Robert Cray. And then we got together, and this is when you had time to do this stuff, and we rehearsed an entirely different set of R&B songs. It's your thing, you know, Soul Man, this kind of stuff. And, and uh, took some stuff from the Nighthawks and stuff mixed with Robert that he was doing. And we made an entirely, sorry, we made an entirely different set. And it was during this time, I have no idea who John is. I don't care for the simple reason of I don't own a television set. Neither did Richard. We didn't own a television set. Yeah. We didn't watch Saturday Night Live, nor did I know it existed. And basically, if you even today, if you're a musician, Saturday night is your biggest money. Yeah. So Saturday Night Live you're busy. is busy. Yeah. I didn't even know it existed. I do remember a drunk girl coming up to me in Canada going, I'm Baba Wawa. I had no idea what Baba Wawa was. I'm going, what? And then I was like, get the fuck out of my face. What are you doing? Who are you? What are you interested in? Baba, and she started talking. Right, like, Gilda uh, Red. Gilda Red. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was the only hint right. of anything. And then I got it years later. So anyhow, back on board here. Um, I'm playing on stage as the Nighthawks. I'm in the middle of a song when a cocaine dealer comes up and yanks on my pant leg. Now, everybody in town knows this guy. He deals to everybody. And <clears throat> cocaine, by the way, what a stupid drug, you know. And these people, I don't have a lot of, I, I don't really have a lot of uh, respectability to. Yeah. And which brings us to this. He comes up and yanks on my pant leg. And he says, hey, Curtis Bellucci wants to meet you. And I look down and go, what's up, Dick? And his name is Richard. Yeah. You know, but what's up, Dick? And he, he goes, I'm in the middle of a song, I said. <laughs> I'm in the middle of a song. And I say, I'm in the middle of a song. He goes, Bellucci wants to meet you. Who in the fuck is Bellucci? And uh, 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 what are you talking about? I go back. I'm holding the microphone. And I'm sorry to say the F word. It's not, you know, I, but uh, that's what I'm saying. And he does it again. And I said, get out of my face. And uh, he walks off. And then I jump off stage. And he comes up again, and I'm headed towards a group of girls that I want to talk to. And I'm headed this way. And all of a sudden, he grabs me, and he spins me around and says, Bellucci wants to meet you. And he goes like this, here he is. And what's up? You know, because this asshole wanted me to meet you. I don't really care. So hello. Yeah. And he goes, Hi, whatever, like this. I really like your music. Well, I'm, I'm not a. I was cocky back then, but I wasn't like, oh, I said, well, thank you very much. And then I'm kind of looking over my shoulder like, I got to go. And he goes, well, I'm with the show. They're making a movie here in town. Hmm. He pin a pin in that real quick. I'd heard about this movie from Richard at yeah. m- our apartment because Robert got a part in the movie. And Richard happened to say in passing, yeah, I guess Robert's got a part of this movie. And really? Yeah, yeah. 
but they want to they need equipment and they need want to know if they can borrow our amp or whatever like that because they need old style stuff so my amplifier is in the movie animal (laughs) house anyhow back to that yeah so Bellucci goes, man, I'm with the town. This is, I'm, I'm in town. I'm with this movie, and they're making it, and I'm part of this. It's a, a movie that we're doing. I go, really? Is Robert? I said, Robert's in this, isn't he? He goes, yeah, I saw Robert today, and that's what the conversation mm-hmm. was. And by the way, right here is the stage. Yeah. Not more than, because I just jumped off the stage or whatever. Yeah. And I remember looking this way, and he goes, yeah, I really like your harmonica playing, and, and I like your singing. He goes, I have a friend of mine. He plays harmonica as well. And I'm thinking, oh, that's that's great. Yeah, he goes, yeah, he plays harmonica. His name is Dan Aykroyd. And I'm looking at him and going, and he, I realize now, was looking at him. He goes, this guy doesn't know any of this. I go, oh, really? Yeah. I said, oh, well, then I'm about to leave. And he goes, yeah, but I'm really, so I'm kind of in this variety show. It's called Saturday Night Live. And I'm looking at him. And he goes, well, I'm excited about this, you know. And then he talks about the grueling schedule he has. I got to fly to New York and rehearse for this kind of Saturday Night Live. And I don't have any idea what he's talking about. But he goes, the plane is going. I got to drive to Portland from Eugene up to there, take the flight, da-da-da-da-da, this kind of thing. And then he says the magic words. He goes, but I'm really excited about this week because we're going to have Ray Charles. And at that, he kind of, and I go, what? (laughs) What? And he kind of, that's when, if I think about it right now, he kind of backs off a little bit. And now I'm going like, wait a minute. (laughs) Ray Charles. And I said, you got to ask him about Guitar Slim. And he he goes, who's Guitar Slim? I go, you don't know Guitar Slim? Are you crazy? Guitar Slim has had one of the biggest hits in 1953 called The Things I Used to Do. Everybody's done it. You know, this is like one of the biggest R&B hits of the yeah. 50s. And uh, he goes, really? I go, Ray Charles plays piano on it. You've never heard Guitar Slim? He used to paint his hair green, mile-long guitar chord, way ahead of his time, right? As, and uh, he starts turning around and coming. Who is it? Talk to Ray about what? And I said, did you know Ray Charles? He plays alto saxophone, you know. He goes, he plays alto saxophone. I said, yeah, he's a good jazz alto saxophone player you can hear him on atlantic records 1958 it's called hot rod and it's live at newport ray charles he plays alto saxophone and so he's like well let's go upstairs and smoke a joint so we go upstairs we're at the hotel Mm -hmm. it's called the eugene hotel and we go upstairs and we smoke a joint i come back down I'm late for the start of the of the big finale where both bands are together. I remember that well. <laughs> and we exchange numbers and stuff. And he reaches out to me later on and says, come on over for dinner. As the week progresses, that's a Saturday. It mm-hmm. goes through the following week, and I got another gig outside of town. And when I came back with the Nighthawks, you know, we had a gig somewhere like Corvallis right. or, you know, Roseburg or Portland or something. I come back into town. All the musicians are humming and talking about the Ray Charles Saturday Night Live. Because not all the musicians are working on Saturday. Right. So, but just the whole town is buzzing about Ray Charles on Saturday Night Live. And guess what? He plays the saxophone he hasn't played in 17 years. (laughs) And so I'm thinking, it doesn't matter. I know that the Saturday Night Live could have said, hey, Ray Charles, sure, those guys know that. Mm -hmm. But to me... I just meet this guy. He's, he's with this show. 
I have no idea how big he is and how influential he is mm-hmm. for the whole Animal House National Lampoon thing because he was huge. Yeah. And I would discover that later. But, you know, um, I'm just like, you know what? I caused that. And I still know I did. Yeah. I can feel it. That's cool. Because he went back and he's the one who asked Ray Charles to, you know, do you play alto saxophone? And Ray Charles plays alto saxophone. Later on, they would say my name on Saturday Night Live. Well, and you're on the album cover as well. You're listening to King's Portland 50 series. I'll continue my conversation with Curtis Salgado in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with Curtis Salgado, an award-winning soul, blues, and R&B vocalist who's also known for his harmonica playing. Curtis grew up in Eugene, where he was the driving force behind the Nighthawks and a number of other bands. He met John Belushi in the 70s, and John used his blues knowledge, honed from hours spent learning from Curtis, to create the Blues Brothers. We become friends, and I meet his wife, Judy Jacklin. I get a call and come on over and have dinner. So I go over there and I bring him my records and he starts and he is paying attention. And one of the things that happens when I first meet him is he's sitting there or meet him at the house outside of his element. Um, Judy's cooking and he's watching Gunsmoke. And I go in and I sit down and I go, what are you doing? He goes, hey, have a seat and sit down on this couch and we're looking at the television and he's watching Gunsmoke intently and he's just, and a little um, um, side actor, you know, um, character actors. And he comes on the screen, goes, mail call for Mr. Dillon. And John goes, mail call for Mr. Dillon. And Kitty comes on, and she talks to uh, James Arnaz and says something. And, and he mimicked every single actor on there, mm-hmm. just whatever small part actor would come on there. What anything he was just yeah. sitting there, riffing, absorbing it all, absorbing yeah. and copying and running it. Back. Oh, this is a great this guy right here. It'd be some old man. It wouldn't be the usual, you know, Chester or any of that mm-hmm. stuff. It'd be somebody who's like, and I'll never forget that. And he was just riffing. Now I took a little bit of acting, so I know what he's doing. But to watch it at that tent and what he's doing, and he would sit there and work on these characters as we're waiting for dinner. Yeah, I love this guy. He's not going, Kurt, so how you doing like that? He's just <laughs> glued to the television, just whipping out whatever actor and whatever line is coming out of him. Yeah. I just I thought that was that. Was he a funny guy? Um, yeah, he, but he's not, not really. Right. You know, it's business. Yeah. And uh, he's got a very active mind and a very thing, but you could tell. And he's a very intense person, and he absorbed, pretty much he absorbed me. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. I'd go over there and watch this and felt this absorption, and we hit it off. Like Judy Jacqueline. Yeah. yeah, Judy Jacqueline was sweet. And later on, I would go, and he invited me to come down to Hollywood while he filmed the movie 1941. Mm-hmm. You know, John gave me the script to Animal House, which I've now lost. Mm. And I'm really, you know, I have other little things yeah. that I'm autographed by him, but he gave me the script to Animal House to read before the movie even came out. Yeah. And so I asked him for the script in 1941. And he goes, Are you fucking kidding me? There is no script. 
we're making this up as we go along, quote, and I'll never, he said, like, what a waste of money. I can't believe it. Then he goes, but I met Christopher Lee today, and that was really, you met Christopher <laughs> Lee? I mean, I love that guy, blah, blah, blah. But just a little side note yeah. that if you read in between the lines, says a lot. Yeah. And he was, he was upset about 1941. Now he's done at, for Animal House. He's back in New York. And by this time, right at this moment, there's a crossover going on. The Nighthawks didn't want to go on the road. Mm. And I do. And I end up joining the Robert Cray Band. Okay. And so does Dave Stewart. And we kind of morph into the new Robert Cray Band. Basically, the front man is now Robert, and we're on his team. And Bellucci calls me up. And he's calling me up at D.K. Stewart's house, and the band's rehearsing. And I sit down and go, how'd you find us? And he goes, <laughs> I have my ways. <laughs> So somebody figured out where we were uh-huh. in Eugene that he called. So he goes, Curtis, what was that bit of business about? Are you going to, you know, it's this little thing. You give all these. I go, you, you, are you doing the song? I don't know. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he had come and seen the Nighthawks play repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And we were doing Soul Man. And I was doing Groove Me. Mm-hmm. And we were doing Messing with the Kid. And we were doing these songs, and he put them on the Blues Brothers record. And the second thing, he goes, well, what was that little bit of business? Are you going to make it? It's in the song, I don't know. I added it from a black comedy record of Skillet and Leroy. Mm. Those guys are old vaudeville black comedy guys. He goes, what's that bit of business? I said, you mean a bit about... um, Baby, what, you know, are you going to make like a camel and walk a mile or make like Chesterfield and satisfy? Those are cigarettes, right? Yeah. She says it depends on what you're packing, regular king size. <laughs> and so he whips out his Jim Beam, and, and it was as hard as a Canadian club, gave her a shot of cream in Kentucky, and that created the Wilkinson family. And the first words out of his mouth was, I can't use the last part. <laughs> well, what are you using it for? And he says, well, I'm going to say it in the routine, blah, 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 blah. And I'm going, you're using this song? He goes, yeah. And, and we want to dedicate the record to you, which went over a couple of other phone calls. But yeah. that's when he goes, I'm going to mention your name on Saturday Night Live. He told me at one point, he told me to get a lawyer. And he did this twice. And I think, I'd like to think, it was just a little bit of guilt because he's looking at me, starving musician, basically. And he goes, you know, if you got a lawyer, you could probably get a, a creation type of free, sort of the person that showed him the yeah. shit. When he told me this was after a all-nighter in L.A. at the end of a party, and him and I have not had any sleep, and it's just him and I in a mansion by ourselves and he he goes and we've both been up we haven't had any sleep if you get my gist i go really i mean where am i supposed to get a lawyer i'm like 24 years old yeah yeah let me get a lawyer right now i'll get back to you i don't know what to do with a lawyer at this point and he told me this a couple times told it to me twice Mm. if you got a lawyer you could probably get a creative thing yeah he knew. He knew. He knew you were the huge. He knew this was. Yeah. He thought I could get a piece of the pie because it blew up. So to make a long story short on this, I was John Bellucci's muse. Mm-hmm. I wish he was alive today, and um, not for any money reasons or anything. I don't feel ripped off. Yeah. I don't. 
You know, it's just the way circumstances was. And I want everybody to know what this wonderful music is. Let's talk about the, the struggles with health, the liver, cancer, and transplant, and, and then subsequent cancers. Hard emotionally, because, because physically you're down and you can't play. Hard financially, and you had the support of so many different musicians and community come out to support you. Unbelievable. I am blessed. Yeah. I am, um, I'm blessed. I owe the universe. Yeah. That's kind of what I say. Long time ago, in the 1990s, I made a record, and you have to think of little things to put in the, in the liner notes and whatever, and I wrote something I'm kind of proud of, and I said, you know, what am I? And I thought about it, and I'm, I'm not rich and famous, but I am rich and famous. I'm rich in friends. And I'm famous in the eyes of a higher power or God, yeah. whatever you wish. I don't know how things work. I don't know scripture. I don't know. But whatever it is we're on here, it's magical. Mm -hmm. And it's beyond our control. We are not in control here. Yeah. I believe in the power of prayer. Yeah. It's a prayer to, I just think it's people's energy and stuff like that and all the thoughts go through. If they really think hard enough, maybe they can alter stuff. Because mm -hmm. it seems to have happened to me. I got, because I was a knucklehead, and at the age of 35, I quit all substance abuse, and I could see my future. Yeah. And so with that came hepatitis C. And hepatitis C is the leading cause of all liver cancer. I was diagnosed with liver cancer in 2006. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, what am I going to do? Here's the thing. Here's God or something working. Cancers are usually, you don't feel them. And if you feel them too late, they take you out. Yeah. And, or you're in trouble. The whole idea with cancer is to get it before it's too late. Well, what happened with me is I've got cancer in my body and I have no idea of it. I have a tumor the size of a lemon and I have no idea. Mm -hmm. And how did I find out? I went and had pancakes and... I got a gallstone attack. I knew I had gallstones, mm -hmm. but they don't attack very often. I call up a lady friend of mine and say, can I come over and crash at your house and just kind of chill out? She's got a really nice place to chill. And uh, she says, sure. And so I go over there, but she sneaks around the corner and calls the doctor. And the doctor says, get him to the emergency room. <laughs> Her first try at this is like, I go, I can't. I don't have any insurance, no health insurance at all. I'm not going to emergency room. About 3 o'clock in the morning, which is about seven hours later, uh, I said, okay, let's go to the emergency <laughs> room. So we go there, and they go, you and your gallbladder have got to stay here, and we need to remove that gallbladder. Mm -hmm. That puts me in the hospital on a Monday, March 13th, 2006. And the doctor comes in. And he goes, so you have hepatitis C? And I said, yeah. Because you know what? I'm going to CAT scan you. Why? I just want to check it out. Well, the thing is, is that he does nothing but small organs and tumors. Mm -hmm. And so he's suspecting that there's something going on. Little do I know this. So they give me a CAT scan and they see a spot. Mm. And they find the spot and then they're going to biopsy it. And now I've been in the hospital Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and I'm waiting for the results, and I'm watching money just fly out mm -hmm. the window. 
And so I leave. I left. Screw this. You know, you get back to me. And so I get a call the next morning, and I'm at the same lady's house, you know, friend. And uh, she goes, here is the phone. It's for you. It's that doctor. Kurt, where'd you go? I go, you guys haven't given me an answer. What's up? He goes, look, we need to talk because, you know, I want to – I go, why? Did your – you know, did your partners in crime miss the spot during the biopsy? He goes, spot? What spot? I said, the spot. That's what they said. He goes, it's not a spot. It's a tumor the size of a lemon. It's 5.5 centimeters, and I think it's cancer. And I just sat cross-legged on the floor, and I went, fuck, as loud as I could. And I didn't do it on purpose. No. That was just brought out. And what's up, says my friend. I, I, it looks like I got a tumor the size of a, bigger than a golf ball. Blah, blah, blah. This all happens. We move through one thing. And then I end up in the doctor's place. And he goes, Curtis, you got about six months to live. You got six months. Before we think this metastasizes, the only thing that you can do is get a liver transplant. And so what are you saying about, I mean, uh, well, you can't do this because of this and you can't do that because there's a vein here and you can't, we don't have, if we took out the tumor, it wouldn't leave much of a liver for you, da, 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 you're Mm -hmm. doomed. And I just stopped him right there and I said, wait a minute, you mean I'm going to die? He goes, if you don't get it out, you'll die of liver cancer. Mm -hmm. And I said, what would you do if you were me? Well, basically, he said, you know, maybe we can get you on some little program or something like this that, you know, where you're an experiment. And, uh, you know, so I'm on a list as if we go like this, it'll be a lot less expensive and we can put you on blah, 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 blah. And that started the journey. Hmm. And as a result, it did metastasize. The first thing that happened to me was, how am I going to how am I going to do this? I need a liver transplant. I'm dead. And, And that changes your whole outlook. Forever. Forever. And uh, things don't have that kind of meaningfulness to me. When I, when I watch the world, when I watch politics, when I watch it, it's all stupid. It's just so meaningless. Mm-hmm. Because what's important is your family, your friends, and how you treat one another and whatever. Now, I didn't learn this just from there. Yeah. I already knew this. But now it's just intense. Crystallizes. Yeah. So, you know, you better enjoy life and life is finite. However, the other part is, it's like, I said, what am I going to do? And this is what happened to me. And these are all miracles. I didn't know. I mean, I just play music and I didn't know anybody cared. Yeah. You know, you have your fans and stuff. And uh, my manager, um, I called him up and I told him what's going on, what we're going to do. And uh, first thing is, is a guy came forward and uh, donated $90,000. Wow. And then challenged other people. Wow. You know, $90,000. You know how much weight that took off of me? This is like, where's, there's that. Then there was the, the kink radio. Yep. I remember free less, advertising. Less talking about it a lot. Yeah. And then you guys didn't charge. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I'm just being blunt. Yeah. Uh, Oregonian, two full-page ads that we're going to put out at various times. Don't just do them in a row. You know, you want to... You know, there's all plotted out, you know, yeah. and that's what $10,000 for a full, full page ad kink just on the radio doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they donated the Coliseum to me. Well, when he told me this stuff, the kink, 
Oregonian Coliseum. I said, excuse me. And I got up and cried like a three-year-old <laughs> in the bathroom of the Hawthorne Cafe yeah. on Hawthorne Street. God, it still chokes me up. Mm-hmm. It's just like, how do you say thank you? It's all about love. And it's always been, I'm just that guy. That's how I am anyhow. I mean, I remember the outpouring. I remember the, the concerts. You know, you had a lot of folks come out and, and play uh, right. to help you raise money. And like I said, I remember Les talking about it and you coming in and talking to Les about it. It was neat to see. You know, it's Bonnie like, Raitt played, Bonnie, paid yes. my, she paid yes. my rent yeah. at my house. It's, it's that Taj kind of Mahal thing that you realize free. Robert your Robert Cray for free, are. Steve Miller yeah. for free, uh, Everclear, who lived here in yeah. Portland but had a top 10 head at the time. Yeah. Very strong showing. And Little Charlie and the Nightcats, which I picked his, you know, he's one dear friend of mine, and they put on a great show. And it was but, you know, some of this, the names that, you, you know, you mentioned Everclear and yourself and then a couple of other bands uh, performing, and I know I'm dovetailing into something else, but performed at Les's Memorial Concert. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's those kind of things. You were on stage performing. I was on stage uh, talking, and it's those kind of things that you see you know, where the love is and where the community is and, and how much of an impact right. you've had in the community, a Les Sarnoff has had in the community. And, it, you know, it's... Well, unf- Les was a mentor to me. Yeah, I me mean, too. I, you know, he, he knew how to shut me up. <laughs> you know, but he was a wonderful person. Yeah, yeah. If we could talk about him for just a sec, he we was can. the voice of Portland. He was the voice of Portland. Yeah. He, was, he was so much of kink... And he, you know, it's the kind of thing he would be embarrassed if you were standing next to him saying it. But you know, well, that's humility. Yeah, and humble. at the same time, you know, he was he he was a big part of King's history. His loss was felt not just uh, on the air, but in in the hearts of people who knew him or just listened to him every morning. You know, it's that kind of thing. You know, you are so much of Portland, so much of Eugene, so much of the Pacific Northwest um, that it's not surprising i know you were surprised at the time but it's not surprising of the outpouring of of support that you got i'm still surprised that whole thing you know i'm not bragging that these people played it's just like i'm i'm knocked out what i still when i say it's like i can't believe it you know what you know you want to win a grammy you want to do this you want to you want to do you want to fill up coliseums and stuff it's like that that's all happened yeah and, and it's still continuing. It, it's it's uh, maybe that's it. I don't really. I'm happy w- with what it is. Uh, you know, I wanted to be. I wanted to fill up coliseums. I wanted to do this, and and uh, this kind of thing is even better. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, I'm it's validated a, so much every day. It's 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 hard to take. People, it, you're awesome. You're great. God, you have so much done. It's just like stop it. You know, s- s- you know. Stop, but don't stop. No. Stop, yeah. You know, stop. Whisper, whisper. I'm embarrassed. No, but yeah. I don't think of myself better than anybody, whatever. I'm a regular knucklehead. This is all I know how to do. This but, is it. But I don't know impacts. anything else. Music yeah, music impacts. impacts I right. mean, you know it. Good times. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it speaks Memories. to you. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe the last time you and I came face-to-face was probably at uh, Les's Memorial concert that took place a month after he passed. It was right. May 17th, it would have been, mm-hmm. um, at Pioneer Courthouse Square. Everclear performed 
Um, you performed as well. Uh, Congressman Blumenauer was there speaking. And it was really a neat day to sort of honor Les. But you've got a, a song, and I want you to tell the story about how that song came about. Well, the song came about from, uh, I was invited to the wake. Yeah. This would be after, was this the day that he was buried? Or? Yeah, it was a week, about a week after he passed. He right. passed away on a Friday night, and so this was Sunday. And went to a church. Yep. In West Lynn. In West Lynn. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. And, and it was there that I watched a film, or mm -hmm. we all watched a film. Yeah. And it started talking about dogs. Now, every time I meet Les, it's either at an event or in the studio. Yeah. Les is one of the first people, really, who sit there, and he was hilarious, and he was funny, and he was guiding me because I'm a little bit a free associate thinker. <laughs> you get going, of course, it's just one branch leads to another. And yeah. But he taught me to edit. Mm -hmm. And obviously, I haven't learned my <laughs> But he taught me to edit, was one of the first ones, and I just got a big kick out of courtesy. You don't want to kind of branch off. You want to stay on point. And uh, what does this have to do with uh, how we get to the dog song? Yeah. Um, I wrote a song called The Greatest Wish, and I hit on something. And the reason I hit on it is that I I've, I've found this sentiment that um, is called, I wish my dog would live longer. And the name of the song is The Greatest Wish. Yeah. And I thought about it, and it came together after going to Les's wake. And that's how it came about. And the reason is, is that I learned at his wake that he was a dog lover. Of course, we already knew he's a class act, he's mm -hmm. a wonderful person, and uh, charismatic, mm -hmm. and empathetic, funny, open-minded, yeah. funny. He was a special person, was. and he was gone too soon, way too soon. Big sucker punch for uh, not only his family, but for everybody, yeah. anybody involved. Like, did not see this coming. And, uh, and then for me personally... How did he not make it and I did? I'm going to say it. I felt the same way with Paul DeLay. And now Linda Hornbuckle, Janice Scroggins, and Les Sarnoff. It's just like, I, you know. So I won't even go there in that. But I'll tell you this. Les is a big dog lover. Huge. And uh, I had no idea. And I wish him and I would have talked about it. And I went home and I was depressed but I just laid down on the couch and it just kind of like absorbed what I've just been through and absorbed the thoughts of less what's going on, my own cancer battle, his, what, I don't know what, what, you got skin cancer? There's, I'm thinking these thoughts on the couch. I thought about this song and I had a dog and his name was Chester. And when I was an infant, Chester was a puppy. Mm -hmm. and when I was 14, Chester was 14. And Chester went into convulsions at the age of 14. And that is when I learned, is like dogs only live to be about 14 years old. But what? The, what do you mean they only live to be 14, 15, 13, 12, unless something else comes along? And, and never thought of that. Yeah. And I've kind of felt like that is cut short. And then it's just like, same with never, what? Less is not with us? And uh, I don't know, maybe that's kind of, I feel kind of how it came together. And I just sat up and I grabbed a notebook paper. That's what brought Les and I 
to make this song. Mm-hmm. The words are, I wish I could read the minds of women. I wish I had gills for swimming. I wish I had movie star looks. And I wish I knew every trick in the book. And I'd like to feel first love again and be 20 years younger. But the greatest wish, I want to come true. I want my dog to live longer. I wish I was the king of rock and roll. I wish I was cool and in the know. And I'd wish I'd wrote blowing in the wind. And I'd like to see my late mother again. And I'd like to stop poverty. I would. And I'd like to save the world from hunger. But the greatest wish I want to come true, I want my dog to live longer. I want my dog to live longer. Because when he goes, I'll be blue. And if I had the power, I'd have him live as long as me and you. Because God's got a reason for everything. And in the Lord, I trust. But this ain't right. God needs to see the light. Because dogs don't live long enough. He cheers me up when I'm sad. He's the best friend I've ever had. And I don't care where his nose has been. I'll let him lick my face again and again. His love is unconditional. And that just makes me stronger. And so the greatest wish I want to come true. I want my dog to live longer. And that's from less, and that's yeah. to less. That's perfect. Yeah. Thank you. And Chris. Kink and Kink Radio is supporting me for so long. So. Wish I could read the minds of women. Wish I had gills for swimming. Wish I had movie star looks. I wish I knew every trick in the book. I'd like to feel first love again and be 20 years younger. But the greatest wish I want to come true, I want my dog to live longer. Wish I was the king of rock and roll. Wish I was cool and in the know. And I wish I'd rope blowing in the wind. I'd like to see my late mother again. I'd like to stop poverty, save this world from hunger. But the greatest wish, oh, I want to come through. I want my dog to live longer. I want my dog to live longer. Because when he goes, I'll be blue. If I had the power, oh, I'd have him live as long as me and you. Because God's got a reason for everything. And in the Lord, I trust. But this ain't right. God needs to see the light. Because dogs don't live long enough. He cheers me up. When I'm sad He's the best friend I've ever had And I don't care Where his nose has been I let him Lick my face again and again His love Is unconditional And that just makes me Stronger So the greatest wish I want to come true I want my dog to live longer Oh, the greatest wish I want to 
to come true. I want my dog to live longer. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with Curtis Salgado. If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, you can find them at our website at kink.fm. Be sure to like and subscribe to the Portland 50 podcast wherever you're listening. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating King's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.